written thousands of years ago. Every page, every story, inspired from God. Do they apply to me? Is the Old Testament obsolete? With Pastor Jim Scudder, Jr. Does it ever bother you that things seem to go obsolete the day after you bought it? And that's true with smartphones. I'm not sure how smart they are. Uh, we probably couldn't live without them, but uh, sometimes they're more of a pain than they're worth. One of you told me that yesterday you had a, a fall and your phone was in your back pocket and your phone saved you from severe back injury. But then it hits you in the wallet because that's, you know, that's a lot of money when you break a phone these days. But that's one way to upgrade is break your phone. And so uh, ever since we've had Apple Care on our phones, I never break them anymore. But if I, if I canceled that you know, insurance, uh, sure enough, it would happen, right? Uh, we have some obsolete things that we're bringing uh, to you, and we want to see if you know what these are. You might or might not, but we wonder if your kids or grandkids know what some of these things are. So we have another interesting item. Do we have any kids that would like to come up to volunteer? Okay, I got a really excited one. Come on up here. Yep, you, come on up. Hurry on up here. Good. Let's give them a big hand for wanting to do this. All right. Are you ready to go? Okay, turn and face that way. What's your name? Jacob. And do you know what this is? No. What? I can't believe you don't know what that is. This is a black tablecloth. <laughs> do they have things like this in your house? No, probably not. Okay, you want to help me take it off and reveal what's there? One, two, three. Okay, now what is that? A sock. Well, not that. What is this? I don't know. Well, that's good because so far, uh, the kids don't know. And I actually didn't know what this was until I did a research. Some of you do though, right? If the sock might give it away. A few of you know. So this is a sock darner. Sock darner. Now, do you ever get holes in your socks? Yes. Can I see your socks right now? Either he doesn't have them on, or he's got big holes in his socks. No, I, I wouldn't make you do that. Okay, so I want you to hold that, and I want you to take a pair of these socks. I'm not sure whose these are. Karen. Okay, put it inside, all the way in. Now, let's say, you know, where, where do you get holes in your socks? Usually, it's here on the toe area. So push that all the way up. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, I know. It's like a puppet almost, right? And then once you have that, oh, actually, there is a hole. Look at that. It's not like all the way through yet. So what do we normally do when we have holes in our socks these days? Throw them away. Right. Isn't that kind of kind of bad that we do that? But we do because who's going to take the time? So what, what you do is you put the where the hole is, and there actually is. Can you all see that? Uh, I can't believe whoever socks these are. So what you do is you use this as kind of a, um, a solid object to sew that closed. And it kind of helps you sew it closed. Now they say that you should use a thread that matches the sock. Would that make sense? Yes. Yeah, because then it wouldn't be as noticeable. But somebody suggested that you use a really different color, like hot pink. 
because then you'll tell everybody that you know how to sew your socks. What do you think? No. No. Okay, good. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give them a hand and I want to give you this. And listen, I want you to use that $20 before that goes obsolete, right? Yeah. You used to be able to buy a lot with $20. I don't know about that anymore. So, okay, good job. Another big hand. So the question that we're answering is this. Is the Old Testament obsolete? We call it old. Does it mean that we don't really use it, need it? Is it why is it even in our Bibles? You know, you have two-thirds of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, or it might be better to be called the Hebrew Scriptures or the Older Testament. Uh, but does it matter that, <clears throat> that, that this is in here? Do we need that part of the Bible? We call it old. Does it mean it's obsolete? And some preachers have actually really minimized the Old Testament. Now, I think we can overemphasize it, and certainly uh, we don't want to do that either. But without the Old Testament, we don't know a lot of what the New Testament is talking about. Because it's based on this foundation. This is foundational. Especially the area that we're in right now, which is Genesis. If you don't understand Genesis, you're not going to understand gender. You know, there's a lot of really confused teenagers right now that, that have this dysphoria, this, you know, I don't, I, I, I tell you what, almost every teenager has a lot of dysphoria, not just in, in, um, gender, but in many, many things. You know, like, you know, just confusion and uncertainty and maybe they've been teased or made fun of. And so then they said, well, I've been hearing that maybe I was, instead of a girl, maybe I should have been a boy or, or vice versa. And there's a lot of confusion on this. But what Genesis tells us that God made two sexes, two genders. And he made it for a reason and you're one or the other. And that's, that's a scientific principle. You cannot change that. Okay, so you won't understand a lot of the issues that we're going through today unless you understand the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we have here a scripture that doesn't change. It's not obsolete. It's important. Now, some of the things that are in the Old Testament don't apply to us today such as the, the Jewish feast days and the, some of the laws that are in there. We, we don't bring lambs to church today. We're in a different age, different dispensation. But those things were important uh, at that time, and we can't negate that. Uh, those were all a picture of the Messiah, the, the different feasts, the different observances. And the, the laws, uh, the Jewish laws, are are good, but... The problem is we can't keep the law and we're failing and one came that could and did. And if we put our faith in him, so can we not only be washed by his blood from our sins, but also we can live the life that he wants us to live by his guidance and power in our lives. And so the Old Testament is foundational, and we need to keep that in mind. What we've been doing, though, is using a, a New Testament passage to springboard and look back into the Old Testament and try to understand what it, the Old Testament was trying to tell us. For instance, look at Luke 3. In verse 36, Luke, the doctor, uh, is giving us the lineage 
of Jesus and in, and he goes back to Adam and in, in Jesus lineage, we have, uh, the son of Canaan, which was son of Arphaxad, which was the son of, this is Shem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech. So here we have this person named Noah. We know that one of his sons that was on the ark was Shem. A grandson on the ark was Arphaxad. So we, not on the ark, but the grandson, I guess, kind of was on the ark through Shem. Uh, but we would have been a descendant, all of us, of Noah, and including Jesus. So if this is in the New Testament, and here in another place in Second Peter, Peter actually refers to Noah and the ark uh, several times in his two letters that he wrote. In 2 Peter 2.5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So if we don't know the Old Testament, we don't know Noah, we don't know the flood, we don't know Shem, we don't know any of that. So that's why it's important for us to know what it says, to study it, to consider it the whole counsel of God, to not neglect it. Now, I really think our focus should be on the New Testament, but we cannot neglect the Old Testament. So how do we do that? Well, many of you are good at reading a psalm or a proverb every day. I think that's really, really good. That's a lot of wisdom there. But go through, go through the Bible. Read through the entire Bible. And everything builds upon the other. So let's go back and, and talk about the flood. And we've been discussing this for several weeks now in our series is the Old Testament obsolete. And today my title is what was the world like when Noah got off the ark? Now, we already have discussed that the ark could have held all the animals. If you understand the kinds and the size of the ark, it was plenty big. Uh, we've understood where all the water came from and where all the water went. We think of it uh, sometimes as just the rain fell and flooded and there wouldn't have been enough water in the atmosphere to do that. But the Bible doesn't say just the, the rain from heaven. It says the fountains of the great deep opened. Last week we talked about and we'll continue to talk about this week, some of the evidence that plate tectonics and the moving of continental plates and the ocean plates uh, were unzipped at the time of the flood, uh, causing these massive geysers of water, filling the atmosphere with moisture, rain coming down. So you have water coming up from the, uh, from the oceans, coming, uh, the oceans are rising up, water is flooding over the land, the mountains weren't as high then, and the rain is coming down. All of this happening uh, over weeks, eventually flooding the entire world. The mountains were all covered by 25 feet of water. The entire world was covered. Well, there's the Bible talks about Noah, right? Look at Genesis 8.1. Uh, now, this is as the flood was uh, starting to regress or recede. God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. So remember, it was Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives, eight people. And then we have the living things, two of every of the living things. There's seven of the clean of the living things. And they're all on the ark. Imagine that, the entire living creatures of the planet, other than the, the fish that can survive in the sea, were on this boat. Can you imagine if that had a leak? Can you imagine 
if it had been, you know, turned over and, you know, then it's, then it's over. But here, let me tell you this. When God saves, God saves. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about uh, losing your eternal life once you've received it by faith in Jesus Christ. And so here, there's this ark. God makes a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assaged. This old English word, the waters started to recede. And we discussed how that would have been uh, done last week as the uh, ocean plates were getting cooled on the uh, extremes. They would sink back down, causing these deep, deep trenches that we even know Mount Everest can fit into one of these deep ocean trenches with water above it. So these are deep, deep parts of the ocean. Water fled off the land. The continents had also moved, and we'll explain that a little bit today. And uh, the fountains of the deep, verse 2 of Genesis 8 also, uh, the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And verse 3, the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the timeline of the flood and how that all happened. We'll do that a little bit later. But here we have, after 150 days, the water is at its deepest, at its apex. Now the water is regressing and, and returning back into the oceans and uh, the land starting to reappear. Everything, though, has succumbed to the flood. Every living creature that has breath in its nostril is dead. What a somber and awful and terrible thing. And the world would have been very populated at that time. Well, here's a video that someone made. I think we'll kind of show you some of the evidence that we find around the world today. And a lot of people say all the geology and all the oil and coal and all of the, the layers and fossils are a result of millions of years of slow, gradual processes. I don't think that's possible. Every, I think almost everyone understands that this was all the sediment layers and the fossils had to be a result of water. Water deposition, okay? And if we're finding these, if we're finding these global, uh, uh, thick layers around the world, the same layers all over the world, then I would say we'd have to say that this was a global water event. Most geologists or, or most evolutionary scientists will never, ever, ever say global flood. Why? Why would they be so adverse to that? Because the Bible says it, okay? So, so if, if that's your mindset, you came into uh, hearing this message from the the normal traditional paradigm of millions and millions of years of slow processes, and that would means you know these layers would build up just a piece of paper a year and eventually stack up to miles of thickness. That's what you've been taught, and that's those that you respect and those smart PhDs told you that. Well, I need you to to dismiss that for a minute. Read what the Bible says. Now look back at the evidence through that lens. And it actually fits far, far better. Here's some of the evidence of a global flood. The data supporting catastrophic plate tectonics being responsible for the breakup of Pangaea is overwhelming. We have torn apart continents that once fit together, a 40,000 mile rift system, a massive mid-Atlantic ridge, subducted ocean plates around the world, a ring of fire from where the plates are still subducting. A massive fossil record with the same types of creatures now separated by thousands of miles of ocean. River fans that were laid down after the continents separated. 
volumes of coal and oil from the rapidly buried pre-flood landscape and ash generated by volcanoes erupting from the motion set in place by the rapidly subducting plates. Evolutionists and creationists have the same data, but this data is interpreted through worldview lenses that lead to very different conclusions. Evolution's Pangaea split apart millions of years ago by random processes and led to the configuration of Earth today. If the Bible is correct, Pangaea was a pre-flood paradise that became marred with sin, and the resulting judgment from God left behind a trail of incredibly obvious markers that Earth was catastrophically reshaped during the biblical flood. Okay, so there's a lot of evidence there. We've discussed a lot of that before. Let's just go over that a little slower now. Here we have the different uh, plates and the, the, the rips in those plates. You have these uh, big tectonic uh, ridges here where you have volcanic activity, molten material coming out of the earth. Uh, you also have, you have the, some of the plates are going uh, down and underneath the continental plates. And there you're finding volcanic activity even today. You're also finding zones where the plates are moving uh, past each other and causing earthquakes as those plates stick. Uh, and then you have other places where it's it's actually spreading apart from each other in these middle of the ocean. So this would make sense. This whole continent was all one. All these continents were were one. There wasn't a sea according to the creation story. It talked about the land coming out of the water and the water was separated from the land. So almost like in the future, in the millennium where uh, there will be a, a recreation, there will be no sea. In other words, there's no sea dividing us. Today, these are massive, massive oceans that are dividing uh, people groups, right? All over the world. And that won't be the case. This will all be brought back together. Something happened at, at the very start of the flood that unzipped these different plates and it caused incredible upheaval, movement of water, of uh, sediments, of warmer ocean temperatures, and all of this is what we see today. Now, today it's moving very slowly, but we believe that these plates would have been moving at, they said, five miles an hour. Okay, so how long would it take, let's say, this North American plate to move away from Europe and, and Africa? Well, if you move at five miles an hour, which is what the, some of the top seismic experts believe, that was Dr. John Bumgartner, he's a creation scientist, PhD. He wrote the model called Terra that actually explains this continental uh, movement. Uh, he said about five miles an hour. So that would take around three months or so for the continents to spread apart at if, if one continent went all the way around the globe away from the other one. So that fits within the flood time, right? We know that the flood lasted at least uh, 250 years before the mountains were starting to show, and they were on the ark over a year, okay? So it had plenty of time for all of this to happen and to leave all the layers. It would have been fast deposited layers, massive layers all over. Even where we are, there's layers below us of sediments full of fossils, okay? So, and and by the way, let me just say this. Uh, we have these layers that, that cross continents. So we have the same layer here that we find there, let's say the White Cliffs of Dover, England. We have uh, the matching plate on this side. So all of these sediments would have been laid down when everything was still connected, and then these broke apart, and you have the same fossils. And here's another image that that video was just talking about, you have fossils that line up. Let's say these fossils would line up with fossils that match. And, and all the way across continents, you have fossils that match 
uh, between continents. So again, this would have all been laid down when it was one big continent, and then it they all drifted apart. Another thing that that video pointed out was these these rivers that come into the ocean, and I believe this is the Amazon. I'm not positive, but I believe it is. If this had been going on for millions of years, these these fans that come out with all the sediments would be massive. Uh, they're not. They're about the size you would expect after four or 5,000 years after the flood of the sediments coming out of the rivers. So there's tons of evidence. How about all the coal deposits? Look at all the coal deposits on the United States even today. I looked this up today, and they say of the known recoverable coal deposits, there's 435 years left of coal. Now, we were in Alaska, and Karen and I were taking this hike, and another couple was coming up, and he was so excited because he had what looked like a black rock. And he was really excited about this and animated. He had an accent, so it was hard to understand him. But we finally figured out that he had picked up a piece of coal from the beach. Like, well, that's cool. So we went down to another beach and we picked up coal. And I'm not going to tell my grandkids what we're going to give them for Christmas this year. (laughs) But we actually had a little firebox in Alaska and it was cold out even in July. So we put some of the coal in there and it burned. It was so cool. You just pick it up off the beach. There's all this coal. Coal is vegetation that's been put under pressure and heat, and we have it all, these huge deposits of coal all over. We also have huge deposits of oil still. There's a one and a half trillion barrels of, oil, of recoverable oil, known deposits of oil. Where did all this come from? Well, it had to have come from all this lush vegetation, all the world suddenly being buried and uh, forming these carbon fuels that we use today. Bless us. Now, what about volcanic ash? Well, we have these huge deposits of volcanic ash. These would have been massive volcanoes that would have been starting during the flood and after the flood. Remember, it would have taken a while for the earth to settle back down after all this upheaval, these continents moving, the plates subducting. Remember the subducting plates that went, the ocean crust that went under the the continental plates are still uh, cold. They should have been warmed up if it was millions of years, but they're cold. So again, it all points to thousands and not millions of years uh, since this cataclysm event. But I mean, these would have been massive, massive uh, volcanoes. And, and again, the world took a while to settle back down. Okay, Genesis 8.4 says, The ark rested on in the seventh month. So do you all remember when the flood started? It was the second month. It was the uh, middle of the month. Now on the seventh month, the 17th day, the ark rested. The ark rested. So it finally comes down upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, usually we just say it came down on Mount Ararat, but this says the mountains of Ararat. And, and here's the thing. There is a place in, in uh, northeast Turkey. It used to be Armenian, but when the, Armenia, but when the maps were redrawn, this mountain that is still called today Mount Ararat uh, had this history as being the mountain that the ark came down on. Now, can we find the ark? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can we go and look for the ark? Many people have. And we've had people here in our church that talked about their trips to go and search for the ark. Now, there's a lot of evidence that people have seen it. Um... I haven't seen enough evidence that makes me positive that they found the ark. 
Uh, if it's there, it's buried in ice right now. Uh, I, I know some really good people that believe it, and there's some real credible people that said they've seen it. Uh, so it's one of those things, right? That it's, it's quite an adventure, maybe a, an in-grace adventure to go look for the ark. I'll only do it if they fly me in a helicopter. You know, I'll, I'll definitely land on the glacier, get out, look around. Nope, not here. Take off again. These people that climb mountains, boy, I'll tell you what. All right, so, oh, by the way, this, this uh, Mount Ararat that we call Mount Ararat today is a volcano. And it's a, a layered volcano. So it erupts, forms another layer, another layer, another layer. And so it, it would seem odd that a, a volcano mountain would be the resting place of the ark. And if it was, wouldn't it be covered with lava or burned up as the lava flowed out? Now, maybe God rose up this mountain. If this is the mountain, it still has that, the history of being Mount Ararat. Uh, and, and, and perhaps it did land there. We don't know. But uh, some people think that it's unlikely that that could be the mountain that is referred to here or the mountains that are referred to here. Either way, we know there was an ark. Now, if we find the ark, would that mean that we'd have millions of people believing in Jesus Christ as their ark of salvation? Unfortunately, I think that even when you have profound evidence, people still refuse to believe. And there's an illustration, isn't there? Uh, there was a man named Lazarus that was a good friend of Jesus, and he got sick and he died, and, and Jesus came and raised him from the dead. And what did they want to do? Instead of believing that Jesus is the Messiah, they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus. So it's, a, it's not always a matter of evidence. I think we have plenty of evidence, plenty of evidence that the Bible is true, and that we do have a creator, and we have rebelled, and we better um, make it right with him. He's offering us salvation. We can get into the door of the ark of Jesus and be saved from a coming calamity. Just as the world was destroyed, the world will be destroyed again. And there's an eternal lake of fire. How do we avoid that? Jesus, he is the door. You walk through and you can be saved today and forever. And so where is Noah's ark? I just wish I knew. The Bible also talks about they got off the ark they eventually went to the plains of Shinar and built a tower, right? We call the Tower of Babel. We'll be getting into that in a little bit. So where is that? Well, if you have Mount Ararat, where it is today, and, and where most people think Babel was, which is just south of uh, Baghdad, uh, that's, you know, that's a pretty big distance. I think it's 400 miles as the crow flies. So would it seem like the the... The Tower of Babel would have been a little closer because they all stayed in one group. They didn't disperse, as God said, as we'll see here in a second. The animals did. The animals did what was right, what God commanded. Why can't we be so obedient as they did? So the animals would have spread out and repopulated the earth uh, as they should have. Now you say, how would they get to Australia? How would they get to North America if they're all over somewhere in the Middle East, wherever the ark landed? Well, remember, we'll talk about this more, but... Uh, with all that warm water, you would have had a lot of evaporation, and you have that evaporation going over land and falling as rain and snow, lowering the oceans by hundreds of feet. If you lower the oceans by hundreds of feet, guess what you have? You have land that connects these continents, and that's how these animals could have got across. Others have, have surmised that there might have been these mass floating mats of vegetation from the flood, and they could have drifted across. I don't know, but I'm guessing the land bridge is a more likely uh, way. And then eventually... 
when God divided the languages and after the Tower of Babel, then man eventually dispersed around as well. But the animals had about 100 years or 200 years head start. So I would love to find Noah's Ark. If you have uh, any, uh, any inside information on that, please let me know. And, and also where, uh, where Babel was. But there's a lot of ideas out there and people are researching it. And I think it's discoverable if the Ark still survives. Now, remember, it was made of wood. So wood decays quickly if it's not buried in something that would keep the oxygen away. Uh, now, it was preserved. The Bible talked about it being pitched on both sides. And so that wouldn't have been an asphalt-type pitch because that would have been something produced during the flood, right? Uh, that would have been a, a carbon material like tar or asphalt. Uh, this would have been probably more of a resin that would come from a tree heated up and impregnating the wood. The gopher wasn't a, a, st- a type of wood. The gopher was a technique of building, and they would have built this interlocking system with this resin uh, that would have soaked into the, to the wood and probably preserved it. So maybe it is still around, and that would be really fun to uh, to go off and try to find the Ark of Noah. But I'm not announcing any trips uh, anytime soon. So can you imagine that in grace? Uh, who wants to go on a search for Noah's Ark? Uh, most of you would, would volunteer, I think. So what would it have been like as they were on the Ark? Uh, they had been floating for five months. Now the Ark finally stops floating. What's it like when the ship, you finally get off a ship? We were on a ship for a week, uh, a few weeks ago. And the first night, we were on land. We were firmly in a hotel room on land. And I got up to use the restroom in the middle of the night. And I, I was doing this. I, I, in my mind, we were still on that ship. Okay? So you, you just you developed kind of that. And we, our ship was actually pretty calm. It wasn't a, you know big waves or anything. But you just always have that little motion you're feeling. What would it have been like getting off after five months? And certainly it would have been very turbulent waters. But I'm sure they were very happy that it had settled down. People say, well, how would they have enough water? How would they have enough food? Remember, there would have been lots of room on the ark for all the animals and plenty of food. They would have had all plenty of time to stock it all up to make sure it was ready to go. Uh, what about ventilation? What about lighting? You know, it's, it's probably not a smart thing to have lanterns on, a, on the ark, right? Um, what do they do with the waste? Well, remember, these were very intelligent people. I, I, I say this. I think the ancients were much smarter than we are. I mean, they built the pyramids without cranes and hydraulics. We, we couldn't even do what they do today, even with our modern technology and equipment. Brilliant people. I think they had systems. They had pulleys. They had ways of feeding the animals from central points, watering the animals. And, and the waste, maybe if you, if you wanted to, you have the waste fall down into a trough and you put uh, insects or worms that could uh, decompose, uh, compost some of that material and uh, ventilation would have been that upper window on the ark. I think they had all that covered, okay? But uh, some people have done a lot of research on that and I'm very satisfied that they would have had all that figured out. But I'm sure they were very anxious to get off the ark. Months and months of this. And now the ark is on a ground. They don't know exactly where they are. They don't know what's going on because they can't see out. But uh, this is this is the way the story continues. Genesis 8, 5. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. You see how exact the Bible is in the recounting of this story? Now, we're going to talk about the different stories of different civilizations that all contain a similar story. 
But the Bible has the most information, all the details in it. And that's what I love about uh, our Bibles is that God uh, has everything in there. So we have the, the first day of the month of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains now can be seen. So that's been about, what, seven and a half months. Uh, they've, they've stopped floating, but they, it's been another uh, a few months before they've seen other mountaintops. Now some of the mountaintops are being seen. Verse 6 of Genesis 8, And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window and the ark which he had made. And I believe that this upper window would have been a long a series of windows, or maybe one, you could call it one long window, and again, helping with the ventilation and maybe some of the light. But they would have had coverings over that to keep the water out, and now Noah opened the window. And certainly that must have been wonderful to stand there and to be able to breathe in and to look out. But maybe it was also terrible, because what would the world have looked like? It must have just been devastation that they were seeing. He sent forth a raven. Okay, so now Noah is sending out a series of birds to find out uh, what the situation is out there. They can't really see that well. They can't tell what's exactly happening. And this raven went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. He sent, so the raven had come back. He also sent forth a dove to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into uh, unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Now this is really cool. Anytime you see the dove as a sign of peace, the dove in the olive branch, where did that come from? It came from right here. Is the Old Testament obsolete? No. Even the world recognizes this story from Genesis. The dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So now you say, okay, how could there be an olive leaf after everything's destroyed? Okay, well, remember how resilient the, uh, the nature that God has created would be. Uh, you have a new volcanic island that comes up out of the ocean and eventually it's fully uh, covered with plants and, and birds and stuff. How do they get there? Well, some float in on these, these rafts, some fly in. Uh, how do the, how do the trees and bushes get planted up on the mountain? Well, you'll watch the birds fly up there and birds do what they do and plant seeds, if you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, fish uh, will be, there's a brand new lake, like these Dead Sea sinkholes. There's no fish in them. Well, now there's fish. How do they get there? Well, these birds fly in with maybe fish eggs stuck to their feet. They land, and now that has, uh, it has fish populating. It's really incredible. So an olive tree would take about uh, maybe a few weeks to a month to, to get a few inches enough to develop a leaf. There was enough time after they had landed as the water was coming down for eventually the the dove to go find that little leaf, a sign of life, a sign of that the earth is returning to the way it was and bring it back. And Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. What an episode this had to be. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. So now he knows that it's, it's close, but he's still waiting on God. Now, over a year later, Okay. It came to pass in the 600th and first year. This is, remember, he was 600 when he entered the ark. 
in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. So not only was the water receding, the waterlogged earth was now dry enough to support the animals and the humans. The Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month on the seventh and 20th day of the month, so now we're talking over a year has passed, the earth was dried. How would you like to stay on that ship for over a year? I'm sure they were really anxious to get off that thing. Uh, even after a week on a ship, you're kind of ready to get off and kind of ready to go uh, to go home. Now, some people get on these cruises and they go around the the whole the whole world. Uh, my dad actually thought about that, but I'm like, I don't. There's no way. He, I think they went on like a month long cruise, and I think he was just ready to go to get off that thing. So after a year, now they're there. And the earth was dried. Verse 15. God spake unto Noah, saying, Bring forth. Did we skip a verse? Stand by. There we go. Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. It's time to get off. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. This was God's command to these animals. Hey, I'm sure he brought the two pairs, the two kinds that would have been very uh, fruitful. And they had as much genetic information that God originally put within them. From those two kinds came all sorts of variations within a kind or different species within a kind. So you have woolly mammoths, you have elephants, you have all these really incredible variations within that kind. And they were to go out and multiply. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. And now they are off the ark. What would the world have looked like? What would it have been like to come off the ark? Every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl, whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. We wouldn't know any of this, folks, without the Old Testament, without the book of Genesis. We wouldn't know about creation. We wouldn't know about marriage. We wouldn't know about clothes. We wouldn't know about all these things, the wickedness on the earth. Why are all these layers of fossils? You go to the Grand Canyon and you can just look out at, at all these different layers full of fossils. And we wouldn't know how all that happened, but now we know. The Bible tells us. The person that was there gives us an accurate recorded history of that. And if people mock you for that, just tell them about the evidence. Tell them about the evidence. And uh, you have the evidence on your side. And now they're all off the ark, and we'll see what happens next time. Let's talk about the timeline real quick. We have the starting of the flood. We have 40 days of of rain and uh, the, the fountains of the great deep and all of this is happening. The water, though, continued to rise for 150 days. Okay, the Bible tells us. We have 250-day periods that are listed here. And then we have the waters receding, landing on Mount Ararat, then a raven is sent out, then a dove, and the dove returns with the olive leaf. And then they finally are able to get off the ark after over a year of being on the ark. So that kind of helps you understand the, the length of the flood. This wasn't just a 40-day flood. This was hundreds of days from the, the beginning to the peak to the receding of the water and all of the uh, the different massive canyons that we find are receding flood waters. 
Maybe some of them were trapped as lakes and it took a little while as all this rain was coming upon the earth from the warmer oceans. Those lakes kept filling and filling and then eventually spilling over, creating these massive erosion channels, the Grand Canyon and many other big canyons that we find that eroded this all out while these areas were still you know, dry enough to be locked in, but wet enough to be eroded out like they they have been hundreds and hundreds of feet, thousands and thousands of feet of material are just gone. If you look at the Grand Canyon, you think you'd see a delta if it was the Colorado River. It's not the Colorado River. And even secular geologists know that now. But what do the signs still say? The signs, if you go to the Grand Canyon, say the Colorado River carved the Grand Canyon. Even in flood stage, it can't carve out some of the wall collapses that they find. There's still rapids today. We have pictures from years and years ago, and the water, even in flood stage, can't carry these boulders out. Well, something did did it, right? Well, it wasn't the Colorado River. It was the receding floodwaters of Noah's flood. Okay, so what about the aftermath of the flood? Well, remember, you would have had volcanoes, a lot more volcanoes. You would have had uh, uh, more temperate climates around the planet. Because you had all this warm ocean water. Right now, the ocean water in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere are cooler because they're further from the equator where the sun is warming up the water. But back then, all the water on the whole world was warm. So you have some tropical vegetation growing in the northern regions. And that's what you actually find. In the stomachs of these mammoths and other creatures, you're finding tropical-style Grass in these northern regions. It all fits with what the Bible says. Uh, you have a lot of rain. You have a lot of snow. So as the world starts to cool down, and this would have been over 100 or 200 years, you have the northern sections that are cooling down. The water's cooling down. It's still evaporating and going overland and dropping as snow and piling up and piling up and piling up. Well, what does that make? That makes an ice age. One ice age, not a series over millions of years, but one massive ice age with some ebb and flow within the ice age that all of this happened. Uh, four years ago, we did an in-grace cruise. I brought along Bruce Malone, who's a great creation speaker. And we did this again just this summer. And I'm going to show you a clip from our first cruise. And Bruce explains the uh, the way that glaciers form. We talk a little bit about some of these glaciers that we're looking at as we go into these fjords. Now, the glaciers are also really interesting as we come up into these places, but there was a time in which there was an ice age, and, and creation in the Bible d wouldn't deny that, actually would explain the ice age. Some people are confused by the ice age. They hear constantly there have been dozens of ice ages over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Now, that's all misinterpretation that leaves out what God has told us. God spent more time talking about this world restructuring flood than the creation of the entire universe in the so book of Genesis. The flood helps us understand a lot of ice would have been the, on this The ice planet. age is a guaranteed consequence of this flood event. See, the flood wasn't just a bunch of water and then it ran off the land. It lasted an entire year. During the flood, the fountains of the great deep broke forth. That was not just water subterraneanly coming up, but enormous amounts of fluid rock, lava, pouring out, creating a large part of Africa, Australia, the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington. The continents themselves, huge plates of rock, mm -hmm. were moving during this flood. India slamming up into Europe. You look at these surrounding cliffs, those are granite. Those did not exist before the flood. That is Thrust foundational up. rock Thrust was up. shoved 
upward as continental plates slam together, forming the Rockies, the Indias. And the continental plates are still moving. They are, slowly. But that's what causes earthquakes. But that's an assumption that because they're moving slowly, people who leave the Bible out say they were always moving that slowly. Right. That's not a fact of science. That's an assumption. Ice Age can be explained by a flood, and that's actually the only way we can understand it. It's not just explained by the flood. It is guaranteed consequence of not just a flood, but an entire globe-covering flood. You see, all this volcanism, all this land movement, it would have heated up the entire oceans of the world. The amount of water wasn't necessarily from above as much as from the fountain the of the Great Deep. heaving up of the ocean bottoms, and the enormous subterranean warm water, water rushing up out. As well. Warm water, volcanism, friction. land movement, friction. Mm-hmm. It's heating up the ocean. We don't know, but the Arctic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, they may have been 70, 80 degrees Fahrenheit by the time this was all over. Now, that is so much water and so much heat the weather patterns of the world are driven by ocean water temperature. That caused massive amounts of evaporation, massive cloud cover worldwide, meaning more of the sun's heat is reflected away, um, and that evaporated water would have come down as snow in the northern latitudes. So now, the, how thick was the ice? Many experts believe the entire oceans of the world lowered in the range of two to 300 feet during the ice age. That's how much water was evaporated. Now that comes down as snow. It takes about 10 inches of snow that compacts to form one inch of ice. It's believed ice sheets covering Canada, this area of Alaska, they were as much as two miles deep. Now that's trillions of pounds of ice. And when that weight shoves those ice sheets forward, fill up existing valleys between mountains that had been shoved up in the later stages of the flood, forming glaciers that moved forward, digging out enormous valleys, which we call fjords. That's why this huge U-shaped valley exists. Ice shoving itself forward, grinding up the rocks, creating a powder. But it did not take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. The ice age literally started immediately following the flood. Lots of evaporation coming down as snow in the north, building up as ice sheets in the north. And that's what caused the glaciers that formed these sort of valleys. The past was very different than today. Mm-hmm. And when we leave the Bible out of our thinking, we misinterpret the past. All right, so you have here, even in northern Illinois, you have uh, evidence of glaciers. Uh, moraines are just just uh, north of here. There's a, a, a moraine um, state park. And so we have uh, massive sheets of ice all over North America from here all the way up to the pole. And a secularist wouldn't have a mechanism to explain that. But someone that understands the flood in the warm oceans would. And so, again, you have a better position if you are a Bible believer. And if you didn't know this, all of the fathers of modern science, uh, I'm almost all of them, I would say 90% of them were Bible believers. And they understood, they believed in the, the creation of the world by God. They, cre- they, they believed in the flood. And uh, they, they brought us what we have today. Uh, some people say you have to be an idiot to believe the Bible or to believe in the flood. Actually, no, I think that's just people don't want to accept what God says. And so that's, those are the people that I would say are idiots, sorry. But uh, if you don't want to accept what God has said, then you're, you're now just, you're, you're on your own. And that means you don't have to be accountable to anybody. But what if there is accountability? What if there is a God? What if all of this is true and there's a judgment coming? Then there's a big problem, isn't there?
All right, let's talk uh, just the last few minutes here about the uh, different stories around the world that there was this this flood event. There are hundreds of flood stories from around the world that all line up incredibly similar with the Bible. Okay, uh, all over the world, you have different uh, uh, different civilizations. Many of them all having these different uh, flood. Uh, legends or flood stories. Now they're not all going to be exactly what the Bible says because they're going to be diverging or, you know, entering paganism and other uh, thoughts into them, but they all have a lot of similarities. Matter of fact, 95% of all of these different flood accounts from different cultures are, say it was a worldwide flood. 88% say that a favored family was saved. 70% of these accounts of different cultures say survival was by means of a boat. 67% say that animals were saved on this boat as well. Uh, here is this year's creation cruise. Now, I did the videoing and the editing on this, so just excuse that. But uh, here is Bruce talking about the different flood stories that are around uh, different cultures around the world. You're talking about these extra biblical flood legends and creation legends. Right. There are similarities, but there are also divergences. Right. Through the similarities actually yeah. are important. They're stunning. Throughout ancient human cultures, uh, we find uh, remembrances and accounts, I prefer that word, of, of the worldwide flood, very much specifically. That would have been the latest enormous act of God upon earth history as all human cultures restarted. And as they spread out from Babel, yeah. there are cultures that remember this in North America and, and other places. How many of these types of stories or accounts are Well, there? a book recently came out called Echoes of Ararat, where the author documented about 360 independent, separate, basically uh, stories and remembrances with all sorts of uh, vague details that uh, centered on a flood destroying mankind upon the earth. And what was the consistency within a lot of those accounts? Uh, that it was a judgment by God, that was a flood that wiped out uh, humanity, uh, that the um, those who survived survived on some sort of floating vessel. Uh, similarities to Genesis, which is much more systematic in detail. All right, so here we have hundreds of flood legends, flood stories, flood accounts from all over the world with a lot of consistencies. And uh, he went on to talk about the Delaware Indians here in North America. And it's really profound, the creation story that they have, the flood story that they have. And uh, we'll have that on this, uh, this In Grace episode when we air it. Uh, by the way, Karen and uh, Joe Salamani were our, our film crew, my wife Karen and Joe. So they did pretty good. They did pretty good. Uh, so anyways, uh, so some of those uh, flood stories, Hawaii has a flood story uh, where uh, a person called Nu'u built a large boat to save his family from a flood. When the boat landed on Mauna Kea, Nu'u offered a pig and coconuts to thank the moon. So the creator descended on a rainbow to reveal that he was the one who saved mankind. Again, divergences, but incredible similarities. Uh, so what would this have been? Well, they all came off the ark, okay? All of these civilizations that we're going to mention, all cultures came off the ark. And uh, when they came off the ark as sons or uh, daughters-in-law of Noah, they had their children, uh, grandsons of Noah, and great-grandsons, and they eventually would have split up after Babel. They would have had the truth and oral tra transmission 
that would have eventually kind of got messed up a little bit. Okay. So we have, we have the accurate, uh, story of what happened, but all of these have like echoes of truth in them. Here's one from the American Plains. They say that giants on the earth offended their creator. Tirawa was drowned, uh, so, dr- so the Tirawa was the creator, so he drowned them in a flood. Then he made the first man and the, and woman who became ancestors of the Pawnee people. That's their story. Uh, in Peru, they have a story that says the creator sent a flood to destroy the unruly giants he had made. Only two giants survived in a boat, which landed, and the creator then made animals to fill the earth, and he made people from clay. Again, distorted, but incredible that all of these cultures and civilizations have all of the similarities that we see. Here's one from Tanzania. God told two men to take seeds and animals onto a boat so they could survive a mountain-covering flood. These men sent out a dove and then a hawk to see if the earth had dried up. Isn't that amazing? Truly amazing. Here's one from China. They have a flood story that goes like this. When a sky god flooded the earth, a brother and sister survived on a boat. They had a deformed child, which the brother cut into pieces. The earth was repopulated from the pieces. Kind of gross, kind of macabre, but unbelievable that there are these, these grains of truth that these stories would have eventually have emanated from. So let's end with Second Peter. Remember I told you that Peter referred to the uh, the ark and, and Noah and the flood a lot. He says this in verse 6 of chapter 3. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water. This wasn't a local flood, friends. If you believe that the Bible is God's word without error, you cannot say it was a local flood. There's a lot of Christians that say it was. How do we know it wasn't? Well, because of this. By the way, if it was a local flood, why bring all the animals onto the ark? Why not just send the animals away from the local flood? See how silly it is? But we don't want to accept what the Bible says. The Bible says global flood, and people just don't, they don't want to be looked at as unscientific or unscholarly. Friends, the, the scholars and the scientists uh, that, that believe the Bible are the ones that are right and the ones that have the evidence. And if you look at just the evidence without the lens of your presuppositions, you're going to actually find it lines up perfectly with the Bible, a lot better than it does with millions of years of slow processes and chance. And then it says in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Now, friends, don't mistake God's long-suffering with the, the thought that he's never going to judge. No, he's long-suffering. He's patient. He's giving you a chance. He's waiting. He's, he's allowing you to, to find gr- his grace. And in the flood story, we find grace. Where? The ark. They get off the ark. They can repopulate. God's grace is evidence. The, the next thing we're going to learn about is this rainbow that has been hijacked by our wicked society, but it's a promise of God to never flood the whole world. By the way, if it was a local flood, hasn't the world been having local floods for centuries now? We've had local floods everywhere. In the, even in the Philippines, there's a local flood. So is that if it was a promise to never have a local flood again, then God's broken his promise over and over and over. No, God promised to not destroy the entire world with a flood. That's what the rainbow means. But he is long-suffering. There is grace. The ark, the door is open. But you have to respond by faith to say, I believe that Jesus is God. He died for me on a cross. He rose again. I trust in him. And then you'll be safe from this coming storm that's coming upon the earth. 
And then verse 9 continues, not willing that any should perish. This is our great God. He's merciful. He's gracious. You know, he just destroyed the whole world. He destroyed a world of wicked and violent people. Okay, He saved eight that weren't. Okay, But he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A change of mind to who he is and what he's done. And then in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come, folks. Listen, it will come as a thief in the night. Thieves don't come in the daytime. Thieves come at night when you're not expecting them. In the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Let me just end by saying this. There are a lot of people that put a lot of time and emphasis into making money. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying being a person of business is wrong. And if God is blessing you and you're working hard and you're using what God has given you for good and for the Lord, that's good. But to ever think that that's the most important thing, business is the most important thing, it's it's better than ministry, that's crazy, okay? Why? Because everything that you do, any accomplishment that you make, any amount of money that you, uh, you earn will be burnt up. It's going to be destroyed. Every house that you build, every car that you have, everything is going to be gone. What will last? Those things that you do for Jesus Christ. Serving the Lord is the most important thing we can do. And I hope that we all have that heart and that that passion to do that. And uh, there is a day of reckoning. The whole world will be burned up. But uh, today, there is a day of salvation. There is a, an opportunity for you to be saved uh, from hell to heaven. And the Bible says that we're all sinners, that we've we've messed up, we've rebelled. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. This is us, we all have sin. Jesus came, he had no sin. He died for our sin on a cross. He was raised the third day and he wants to save you if you'll just believe in him, trust in him. It's not about what you do. It's not about reforming your life or getting more religious or getting better. It's about you believing that he is the son of God who died on a cross and rose again. And you trust in that. You believe in him. You're saved. And then you're, and you don't ever have to worry about destruction. You don't ever have to worry about being separated from God. It's God that loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the great news of the gospel. The door is open. God is not willing that any should perish.